Please continue standing um, as we enter this time of scripture reading. If you, um, the scripture reading passage is from Exodus 15, starting with verse 22 and going through chapter 16, verse 8. If you are using the blue pew hymnal, or sorry, blue pew Bible, it is on page 57 that we will begin. Once more, Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full... Because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him? What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Can we pray for us once more? Father, as we open up your word, as we seek to hear from you, we want to continue to affirm that you are enough, that Christ, that all that Christ is and all that he has done is enough for us. He has everything we need. Lord, this is the cry of our hearts, and we pray, Lord, that if any of us don't feel that, that through the ministry of your word, by your spirit, that we will, by the end of this message, feel that deep need for Christ, and that satisfaction in Christ. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to do a little thing, a little different thing this morning, a little 
congregational interaction. I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you have a test coming up this week? Can you raise your hand? How many of you have a test coming up this week? All right, college students. Yeah, I don't know. You got high schoolers out there and a lot of you other in training. You have, okay, keep your hands up, all right? Uh, how many of you are, are stressed out about it and wish that it were postponed or just canceled altogether? All right. Okay. Now, now another, another different direction here. How many of you are thankful for the opportunity to be tested? All right. Okay. How, how many of you feel an overwhelming sense of gratitude for tests? I, I, you know, I did see a number of hands go down there. So I think it is safe to say that very few of us enjoy being tested. Now, we might accept that testing is just the way of life, but I think very few of us actually see it as a good gift from heaven above. Tests for us are, are typically stressful. They are anxiety-inducing experiences. It's hard to see them as good things. Well, friends, I hope that by the end of this morning, I hope that mentality begins to change as we see the role of testing when conducted by God. This morning in our study of the book of Exodus, we've entered the wilderness. The Lord has just rescued his people from Egypt. He's delivered them from the Red Sea. He has defeated their enemies. They, right now, are at a high point. And you have to think about it. After 400 years of slavery and oppression, things are finally looking on the up and up. But the next thing you know, they're being led into the wilderness. And it's in order to be tested. It says it twice in our passage in chapter 15, verse 25, chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord led them out into the wilderness to test them. Now, whether or not you see that as a good thing really depends on your understanding of the purpose for that testing. If you ever tried to, to join a team that has a limited number of spots, this could be you know, a sports team or an orchestra, a band, a dance company, a cast for a play, then you know that they test everyone because they're trying to weed people out. They're testing everyone because they're trying to determine who doesn't make the cut. No one likes that kind of test. Those kinds of tests are nerve-wracking, rightfully so. But when a teacher gives you a test, assuming this is a good teacher, she's not trying to figure out who to cut from the class. I know it may not feel like a good thing, but that test is actually aimed at teaching you something. The test is not to weed you out. The test is there to build you up. So when you understand that purpose, well, then you better appreciate the whole role of testing in the first place. So when God was dealing with Israel, he wasn't trying to determine if they were worthy of his time and attention. He, he wasn't seeing if they can meet the cut. And we know that that's the case because of the order of this entire narrative. Remember, that the exodus from Egypt came before the testing. The, the, it's not like the Lord put the Israelites through a whole series of tests while they were still in Egypt under bondage in order for him to determine if they were worthy of rescuing. No, it is by his sovereign grace and determination, the Lord chose to put Israel on his team first. He rescued them first, and then he tested them. And so it's pretty clear that this testing is about teaching. 
It's about building his people up, not weeding them out. So what was the Lord trying to teach Israel by leading them into the wilderness with nothing to eat, nothing to drink? Well, I think it's the same thing that he's trying to teach you and me whenever he leads us into a time of deprivation, when he leads us into a season of wanting, into an experience of deep need and desperation. He's teaching you something about yourself, and he's teaching you something profound and significant about himself. So as we go through today's passage, what I want to do is to show you uh, three responses that we see within our text. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline. The three responses, first, we're going to look at Israel's response to a wilderness experience. Second, God's response to his people's grumbling. And third, our response to God's testing. So let's get into this. Let's begin by considering Israel's response to their wilderness experience. Now for them back then, their wilderness experience was literally a wilderness. It was a desert place. But for us right now, the wilderness is typically a metaphor for those difficult, dried up seasons in life. It's, it's those experiences of feeling empty, like something is lacking, like something is not growing in your life, but actually dying. I think we all go through them. Those are wilderness experiences. Now, for the Israelites, though, their wilderness actually had a name. It was the wilderness of Shur. Look with me at verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. Now, I know it says that Moses made Israel set out, but knowing the entire context, we know that Moses made them set out into the wilderness because the pillar of cloud that God had sent by day was leading them in that very direction. And so again, consider the order of events here. The Israelites had just experienced a great deliverance. By the grace of God, they are saved. They are freed. They are liberated from that which enslaved them. And immediately, God leads them into the wilderness. And we don't like to hear that. It doesn't make sense that he would lead them into the wilderness because our assumption is that in a spiritual journey, the emptiness and the lack are things that usually would come first before our deliverance, before we're saved. And now that we experience some profound experience of God, those things we believe should be in the past. Now we should be walking in his victory. We should be serving in his strength. That's our typical expectation. But of course, this text does not match up. Deliverance doesn't lead into into an experience of fullness, but actually into an experience of lack. So what's happening here? Why is it all backwards? Well, consider the fact that maybe we're the ones who have it wrong. Why do we assume that the closer you get to God, that the better life should be, that greater blessings are par for the course for the Christian life? Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, yeah, I, I do see here that deliverance didn't lead to fullness here in Exodus, but that's because you're talking about the Israelites, right? I mean, we're looking at the Old Testament, and, and for us today, we're the New Testament people of God. It should be different for Christians. Our salvation in Christ is deeper and, and much more profound than the Exodus. Well, you just have to look at Christ himself. 
If you look at the end of Matthew, chapter 3, it's there, it's the start of Jesus' public ministry. He gets baptized publicly, and the Spirit of the Lord falls fresh on him, and a voice, a voice from heaven, a voice from heaven speaks a word of affirmation about him and his sonship. So you would think that after Matthew 3, going into Matthew chapter 4, that Jesus would begin to draw these large crowds, and he would be growing his ministry, and things would be on the up and up. But instead, you go into Matthew 4, and Jesus is immediately led into the wilderness to starve and to face great temptation. Sound familiar? So Christians, don't be surprised by wilderness experiences. They're not abnormalities. If God leads you into one, he is not being cruel. He has, he's not treating you unfairly. He's actually treating you like he treated Israel, his chosen people. He's actually treating you like he treated Christ, his beloved son. So take comfort in that if you're going through a wilderness experience of your own. So the question is not whether Wilderness experiences will be there in your journey with God. The real question, friends, is how you're going to respond to them. That's where it's going to help to look at how the Israelites responded to their wilderness experience. So first, we, we, we see them quickly forgetting. They're quickly forgetting, forgetting about all the ways in which God mercifully and mightily defeated their enemies and delivered them from bondage. I mean, and he did it all not because they're so deserving, but because he's so gracious. And yet, they quickly forget. Look back at verse 22. They went three days in the wilderness. Three days from God parting the Red Sea to now them blaming Moses for their predicament and complaining that they have nothing to drink. Three days, that's all it took. God graciously provides for them uh, in this um, moment. And then you keep reading in chapter 16, verse 1, we're told it's only a month later. A month later, Israel has already forgotten about God parting the waters at the Red Sea and sweetening the waters at Marah. And they're back at it again, blaming Moses and complaining, complaining to him, this time, for having nothing to eat. Well, then Moses turns it around on them, doesn't he? he? He says, you know, you're not really blaming me or complaining to me. You're actually doing it to the Lord. Look at verse 8. The Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So this is the nature of grumbling. We quickly forget the thousand days of kindness that the Lord showers on us, a thousand days that we don't deserve, and the one day, the one day he withholds his mercy and he lets us experience the wilderness that we do deserve, we then find ourselves quickly blaming and complaining. We are quickly grumbling against the Lord. And we all do this. I mean, we're all grumblers to one degree or another. When life doesn't go the way we planned, when we're feeling empty and dry, our instinct is to start grumbling. Why? It's because we're so quick to forget the mercies of God. And church, it's for that very reason, because we're so quick to forget, that 
is why we gather every week to sing songs of praise to God, which are really songs of remembrance for us. Last week, Henry showed us how the first thing God's people did after experiencing a great salvation was to write a song about it. Songs help you remember. Songs help you transmit the memory of a particular event to other people, especially those who weren't there to witness it themselves. So this is why, if you're a Christian, it is so important for you to not neglect meeting together every single Lord's Day. And this is why we put a priority here when we do gather. We put a priority on singing. You might be wondering why we keep singing the same songs and why we keep singing the same kind of songs, songs that that seem to simply rehearse the gospel story of Jesus' death and resurrection over and over again. It's because we're so quick to forget. We're so quick to forget the mercies of God. You know, even for those who do make a habit, and I'm probably preaching to the choir here, for, the, for those of us who make a habit of, of worshiping together every Sunday, who, who sing songs of salvation with passion and gusto, even still for us, the minute our needs or expectations aren't met by God, we do often find ourselves grumbling. So another reason is because we find it so hard to see beyond our immediate needs, what's immediately in front of us. We are so often wrapped up in ourselves, so focused on what we're not getting and what's not happening in our lives and how life is not fair to us. And at the root, at the root of all that is self-centeredness. It's the inability to see beyond your immediate needs. And so what we really need to do is to shift our focus off of the lack in our circumstances and onto the Lord of our circumstances. We need to shift our focus off the lack in our circumstances and onto the Lord of our circumstances. We need to get our eyes off ourselves. And this leads to our second point. Let's get our eyes off ourselves and and set them on God's response to his people's grumbling. And we we see now what God does in the wilderness. Look with me um, back in chapter 15 at verses 23 to 25. I'll read that again. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them. So the Israelites go three days without water, and when they finally come across some, they're just deflated to discover that it's bitter. And that's why they named the place Mara, because Mara means bitter in Hebrew. And as we've already seen, they grumble against Moses, which really means they're grumbling against God. But instead of punishing them with a serving of divine justice, God, he serves them a sweet beverage. He tells Moses to take a log, literally a tree, and throw it into the water, and the water suddenly becomes sweet and drinkable. And this gracious miracle happening here of turning the water from bitter into sweet really brings back memories of when God did the exact opposite back in Egypt. Remember when he turned the life-giving waters of the Nile into blood, into something undrinkable. Now back then in Egypt, it was a righteous 
act of judgment against the Egyptians. And that just only demonstrates the wonders of God's love and sovereign grace because now he is treating Israel so well when clearly they're no better than the Egyptians. They're no more deserving than the Egyptians. And God goes on to prove in verse 27 just how his love knows no bounds. He leads these grumblers to Elam, a a resting place that contained 12 springs and 70 palm trees. In Scripture, you have to understand that 12 and 70, these are numbers. These are symbolic numbers that communicate the idea of fullness or completion. And so really what God is doing is he's giving them a foretaste of things to come when one day he will finally lead them to the promised land. So do you see what's happening here? The Israelites respond to the wilderness by quickly blaming and quickly complaining while God, he responds to them by patiently forbearing and patiently providing. In this is love. A month later, in the wilderness of sin, which is actually a word most likely related to Sinai, so it has nothing to do with the doctrine of sin. So, you know, don't, don't draw any kind of conclusion that, that, you know, has anything to do with sin as, you know, uh, disobedience to God. It's probably should be the wilderness of sign, I, I assume. Um, but we see the, wilderness, uh, the Israelites just grumbling again, this time, over food. Instead of raining down judgment, though, what do we, what do we see God do? He rains down bread. This is love and mercy in action once again. And we're told in verse 13 that that evening God sent them quail, and then the next morning they awake to discover bread all over the ground, and they call it manna, which literally means, what is it? Because that's literally what they're asking themselves. What is it? What is this thing? Now, they're not sure what this fine, flake-like thing on the ground is. Uh, later on in, in verse 31 of 16, we're told that it was white like the seed of the coriander plant, and it tasted like wafers made with honey. So once again, God is so gracious as to bless a grumbling, embittered people with something sweet. He did it at Mara. He's doing it again here. And God's grace is sufficient for them. Look with me at verse 16. The Lord commands them to gather an omer worth of manna per person. An omer is about two liters, so just kind of imagine a soda bottle filled with manna. Now read verse 17 to 18 with me. Uh, And the people of Israel did so. that They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And so no matter if some gathered more or some gathered less, God made sure that all were filled. His grace was sufficient for them. His grace was just enough, just the right amount. Not too little grace that they're overcome by their hunger and thirst in the wilderness, but not too much grace that they then grow self-sufficient and they no longer look to God for their needs. That's how God's grace works. It's sufficient. 
he shows us the exact amount of grace that we need to accomplish his good purposes in our lives. So think about what this means. This means God knows your need, and he is going to sufficiently provide. Note that I did not say he will fully provide, but he will sufficiently provide. God will sufficiently provide for the needs of his people. It really reminds me of our Lord's own words as he spoke in Matthew chapter 6, where he says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Christian, even if the Lord has you in a wilderness right now, you don't have to be anxious. You don't have to worry. You can rest in the fact that your heavenly Father knows what you need and he will sufficiently provide. The question really is, do you believe that? Do you trust in God to sufficiently provide for your needs, for your daily needs? This is the test. Do you believe? Do you trust? We started by saying that God intends to test us, remember, not to weed people out, but to build people up. Which leads to our third point here. We've considered Israel's response to the wilderness experience and then God's response to his people's grumbling. Now let's talk about our response to God's testing. Uh, Look with me in chapter 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So the testing is to determine whether they will obey his law, his Torah, or not. And that's a very interesting choice of words here since the Torah, the law, the Mosaic law as we typically know it, has yet to be given to Israel. That doesn't happen until later on in the book in chapter 20 at Mount Sinai. So what that means here in chapter 16, God is testing his people not to cut them, but to prepare them for Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. Because life as the covenant people of God will call for them to exercise faithful obedience in walking in his law. And so this moment right here in the wilderness is really a training ground for the many years to come where they're going to be wandering in the wilderness and called to walk in his law. Now, the particular test here in verse 4 is is whether or not the people will go out and only gather a day's portion of food every day. And for an agrarian people, that is a tough ask. Because if your life and livelihood depends on seasonal patterns and weather conditions that are totally outside of your control, then when you actually do get a bumper crop, Man, you take advantage of that opportunity, of your good fortune, and you harvest as much as you can, and you store up all of the extra because you never know. The future is so unpredictable. And so for these Israelites, 
to wake up in the morning and for them to see manna covering the ground as far as the eye could see and only to gather a day's portion, just a little Coke bottle worth. And that goes against every single instinct in their bones. But that's the test. Will you do it? Will you trust and obey? It says in verse 20 that for those who refused to trust and obey, who tried to put some manna aside for the next day, just in case it's not there, just in case God doesn't pull through, they wake up to rotted manna that bred worms and stank. Now, let's be careful here not to then misapply this verse and to conclude that the Bible is condemning those who put aside you know, savings for retirement or just for a rainy day. I think it would be wrong for us to draw out some sort of principle here suggesting that Christians are, Christians are only supposed to live on a day-to-day budget, that saving is inherently some kind of act of unbelief. Now, it could be, right? But it, it really does come down to your heart. Why are you putting aside savings? Because you want to be a good steward of God's good gifts? Or because you don't trust that God's going to pull through and provide for your future? What's, what's in your heart? What's motivating you? For these Israelites, hoarding all this extra manna, for them, it's clear that they didn't trust God. They didn't trust his word when he promised new manna every morning. And that's why they put things aside, motivated by a lack of trust. Now, there's another part to this test that God's putting them through. If you look at verse 5, there are instructions for how the Israelites are going to prepare for the Sabbath. So apparently, even before Exodus 20, before the uh, fourth commandment was actually given, God's people already observed the Sabbath in some sense. Which really makes sense, since it's not like the law created the idea of a Sabbath day. Now, actually, the Sabbath predates the law. It's part of the creation order that we read about in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. God kept the Sabbath, and he rested from his labor on the seventh day, and he calls his people to do the same. Let me read verse 5. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So on Friday morning, they're allowed to gather two omers, four liters of manna, because on Saturday morning, on the Sabbath morning, you're not going to find any manna anywhere. And at the same time, God promises that that previous evening, Friday night, and that night only, the extra manna won't go bad. It won't breed worms and stink. All of this, of course, is a test to train them to trust and obey. Now, verse 27, if you read to the end, tells us that unfortunately on uh, the Sabbath morning, some people still went out to gather manna, and obviously they found none. Now, the Lord is not too pleased about that, and he does rebuke them, but again, he does not destroy them, even though he has every right to. Now, he wasn't testing them to figure out if they were worth saving. Remember, he already saved them by his grace, and now he was testing them to teach them, to teach them to trust and obey. Later on in in this book, if you go to chapter 20, verse 20, 
we find the Israelites cowering in fear at the foot of Mount Sinai because the Lord has just delivered his Ten Commandments. But the people, they can't handle him speaking directly to them. They feel like hearing God's voice is killing them. They feel like they're about to die. And so they, they cry out to Moses, do something, Moses. And Moses tries to alleviate their fears. And he says to them in Exodus 20, verse 20, do not fear For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So do you hear that? God's people do not need to fear, as in fear that he's going to kill you or or cut you off or weed you out. No, he didn't save you from your sins just to kill you for sinning. Do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you. And so, so there is a, a proper kind of fear that he does want to instill in you. It's not a fear of potentially being cut off. You have to understand, again, the order of God's salvation. He rescues you first, then he tests you, and then you can be sure that he's not trying to weed you out, but build you up. God tests you to teach you to trust him, that you may not sin. And for the Israelites, we do see that they're finally starting to learn to trust and obey. If you look at the very end in in verse 29, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. Verse 30, so the people rested on the seventh day. They're learning. They're resting. You know, church, I I would contend that this test of the Sabbath, I would contend that it still stands for us today. I think most Christians assume the Sabbath doesn't apply to the church. Yeah, we, we, we think that was, you know, just that's part of the old covenant, right? You know, we don't observe the Sabbath in any strict sense anymore. You know, some Christians might agree that it's still important uh, to, some, uh, to, to some degree, uh, but it doesn't have to be a particular day of the week, you know, Saturday for the Jews or, or Sunday for you know, most Christians in church history. But I, I think it's safe to say that most Christians today don't observe a Sabbath rest in any intentional manner. And I know there are a whole host of interpretive issues that we could address when trying to understand how the fourth commandment applies today. Maybe we we might get into that uh, next uh, um, uh, year when we continue this uh, series in 2019. We don't really have time to get into all of the interpretations today, but I think we can just all agree with Jesus' own words when he says in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, that the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. And the whole point there, the whole point that I'm trying to make here is that God asked for the Israelites to rest from gathering manna on the Sabbath, not because he was trying to burden them with all these arbitrary rules and regulations, but because he was trying to teach them to trust. God's basically saying, 
Trust that I will sufficiently provide for your needs and for your families. And really depend on me and demonstrate that dependence and trust by refraining from your labor. Stop working just for one day and really depend on me to get by. So church, what is that going to look like for you? Maybe that means training yourself to refrain from your labor every Lord's day. What if from sundown Saturday to sundown Sunday, you intentionally rested from working or studying or whatever your current vocation is, and you spent that time resting in God and resting with God's people? It would be a test. For some of us, a very hard test of showing us how much we trust God and his providence to sufficiently provide for all of our needs. Now, what these tests in the wilderness are ultimately trying to identify, what they're really trying to show us is really the reason why a person follows God. They're trying to show you whether you're ultimately following God for who he is versus what he gives you. And I think this point becomes even clearer to us when you connect our passage with another account in Scripture of another miraculous feeding that involved a divine testing and a whole bunch of grumbling. I'm thinking of John chapter 6, where Jesus provided bread for the 5,000. I, I love if you can just turn there with me to John chapter 6, using that blue pew Bible. It's on page 891. But in John chapter 6, in verse 5, uh, Jesus sees the 5,000 before him, hungry. And it says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this, verse 6, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And the story goes on to describe how Jesus multiplies five loaves and two fish, and all 5,000 people have their fill to eat. They are sufficiently filled. And it's no surprise that the crowds now love him, and they keep following him, chasing after him. But Jesus recognizes that for most of them, they're just after more food. And so what does he do? He draws an actual connection with Moses and the bread from heaven, but he goes on to call himself the true bread of heaven. Look in verse 32. John chapter 6, verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Go on to verse 35. Jesus lays it out. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, when they realize he's not dishing out any more physical bread, the people begin to grumble. It says in verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were really thinking he was going to give them more bread and now he's speaking about himself. It's not what they were wanting. A little later on, if you look in verse 60, it says that some of his disciples were grumbling. Again, grumbling. And then it says in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. 
So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. You see, those other disciples prove that in the end, they're following Jesus, not because he's the Holy One of God, but because he's useful. So when he begins to get weird on them, like talking about feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood like he does in verse 56, and when he disappoints them by no longer providing for their needs as they expected, they grumble, they turn back, and they no longer walk with him. But Peter and the twelve, they keep following after Jesus, not, not because he's useful to get what they need, but because he himself is everything they need. To whom shall we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. Friends, this may be why God is putting you through a wilderness experience right now. It's probably why he's disappointing you. He's trying to test you to see how you're going to respond, which is really a test to see why you follow God. Do you walk in his law because you find it useful to get what you need? Or is it God himself, the Holy One of Israel, that you need? Who do you need? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this word, this convicting word, forcing us to ask ourselves a very important question. Why we follow you, why we walk in your law. What do we need? Who do we need? Lord, help us to see that it is you. It is Jesus alone who has the words of life, of eternal life. To whom else shall we go? There's no one else. No one else but Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.